sing together these great hymns and songs of praise. Uh, let us return in the Word of God once again to the uh, book, book of Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 46. And with the Scriptures open before us, let us pray and let us ask God to speak to our hearts as we would consider what His Word would have to say to us this evening. Our gracious Father, we thank You for the Word of God. We thank You for the truth, for the veracity of Your Word, for the unchangeable nature of Your Word. And we pray that You would help us now as we ponder it and consider it. Teach us, and may we be taught by Thee and submissive to Thy truth. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in Thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen and amen. We're going to think about the final words of this 13th verse of Isaiah chapter 46. Israel, my glory. Israel, my glory. This morning we pondered our model text for the year, which reminds us of the true essence of the Christian life. It is to live for the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six says, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. If God has saved us, and if he has saved us for himself, then our task, our duty, is to do his will and to do those things that please him, to live for the glory of God, to be surrendered to God. In fact, God has made all things for His glory and for His praise. And the whole of creation, it sounds out the glory of God. But creation is a warped thing because of sin, because of the curse. And we ourselves are warped because of sin and because of the curse. But the redeemed man can do what nothing else can do throughout the vastness of creation we can sing of God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. And we can glorify the one that has rescued us, brands for the burning. And what a privilege we have. It is not an obligation that should weary us. It is not an, an obligation that we should find onerous to bring forth glory to God. It is something that we should find deeply satisfying because God has saved us by His grace, and He's purchased us in order that we might go to heaven to live with Him forever. A little point that I didn't just get to this morning, I just want to bring it to you by way of introduction tonight, is something that is said in the 16th Psalm. So turn with me, please, to the Psalm 16 and to the verse 11. Because this verse teaches us something really important about the glory of God in our lives. Thou wilt show me, David said, the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. 
There are pleasures in this world, but they never truly satisfy. They still leave that emptiness. They still leave that longing. They still leave that discontentment in the heart. True pleasure, true satisfaction is found only in glorifying God. If we are not glorifying God, we're not pleasing God, and therefore we won't be happy. Someone that is saved by grace has been designed by the spirit of regeneration to live for God. That's what God has saved us for. And therefore, we will be the most unhappy people imaginable if we do not do what God has saved us for, if we do not live the way that God has planned that we should live for Him and for His glory. And that's the downside. And if you're a professing Christian, and if you're not living for God, and if you're holding something back, I tell you, you're not happy with the Christian life, and you're not happy in the world, and you're in no man's land, and you're the most miserable creature on earth. At least the person that's unsaved, they think they're happy. And they tell you they're happy. And it's only because they're blind they're not happy. And if you're not saved tonight, you only think you're happy with your sin. You're not happy with your sin, but you think you're happy. You're, you're blind to the happiness that could be yours in Christ. Therefore, you need those scales to be removed. You need that blindness to be taken away that you might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that you might see the one who died for you, who was pierced for you, who loved you so much, that he went to the cross to die for you. And if he did that for you, then surely you ought to be giving your life to him. But you're blind to all of that. I pray that before this meeting is over, you'll not be blind to it. But the person that's a professing Christian you're unhappy and you know you're unhappy. You're dissatisfied and you know you're dissatisfied. It's there all the time because you have experienced the grace of God. But there is an upside here. There is something wonderfully positive. Whenever we live for the glory of God, there's true happiness. A happiness that the world can never give. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Yes, it's a pleasurable thing to be a Christian and to be living the Christian life. Think of what the Lord said to the woman at the well. The person that drinks of the water that you get from this well, they're going to thirst again. And that's so much like the world. The person always thirsts again. But the water that I shall give him, if you drink thereof, he said you'll never thirst. Think of that satisfaction that's abundant, that never ceases. That's what it is to live for the glory of God. Have you experienced that? Are you living for God in this dark world? Oh, that He would have the glory in our lives. and That we would realize the true blessedness that is found alone in Him. We're going to look at this verse tonight, Isaiah 46 and the verse 13. And this, I think, is a possible counterpart, an Old Testament counterpart for a New Testament text. 
And many texts in the New Testament do have their Old Testament counterparts. Their Old Testament reflections are their Old Testament shadows. In a shadow, you don't quite see the full story. But you see part of it. You see the outline. And we certainly have Romans 11:36 in shadow form here and Isaiah 46 and 13. But what a shadow it is. God says... In Romans 11:36, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And through Isaiah, he simply says, Israel, my glory. We think of Israel, we think of the sinfulness of Old Testament Israel, we think of the rebellion of Old Testament Israel, we think of their depravity, we think of how they turned away from God, and yet God would say of his people, You're my glory. And then you think of who God is. The one that set the sun ablaze. The one that put the stars in their position. The one who fills the whole universe with his presence. The one who is righteous. The one who is just. The one who is holy. And yet this great and powerful and fearful God, he says concerning Israel, you're my glory. Israel, my glory. And if that's how God saw his people In the Old Testament, that is how he sees his people today in this New Testament age. His people are his glory. They are his glory. And we're going to think about this and how it relates to us as Christians. And if you're not a Christian tonight, that you would see the true value in becoming a child of God. Because the child of God is described as being God's glory. An amazing thought. So three simple observations I want to bring before you here, which I believe bring out at least some of the truth of this great text. I say none of the truth because we can never exhaust any biblical text completely. Israel, my glory. God's people are glorious in their protection. God protects his glory. Turn with me over to the book of Zechariah, chapter 2 and the verse 8. There's a few references I want you to turn up to tonight if you've got your scriptures. And we're coming right through towards the end of the Old Testament. You have Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, just at the very end. And you come to Zechariah chapter 2 and the verse 8. And notice what God says of his people here. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoil you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. The apple of the eye. The apple of the eye is the pupil. And we know that the eye is a most sensitive, delicate organ. Capable of great sensitivity. Able to respond to light. Send intricate messages to the brain. Enable us to interpret everything that is around us. Amazing gift, the gift of sight. And yet... The eye can be lost so easily. 
And we all know what it's like to get something in your eye, perhaps a little speck of dust and how irritating it is. And therefore, God has designed the eyelids and the, eye, the, the eyelashes in order to protect the eye. And God, he's calling Israel here the apple of his eye. And the reason why he's calling Israel the apple of his eye is because he will do everything to protect his people, for they are his glory. And he will not allow his people to be hurt, just as we will instinctively protect our eyes. We will close our eyes. If dust rises, if we're in a place and there's sand blowing, we'll, we'll close our eyes. You don't have to be told to do that. You'll do it. It's automatic. You want to protect your eye. So God says that he'll protect his people. And the person that touches you, God said, touches the people of my eye. You know, the Jews have a way of expressing this. They say that the person that touches the people of God are poking God in the eye. That's what they're doing, poking God in the eye. Now, there's a tremendous comfort here for God's people because it illustrates and highlights the lengths to which God goes to protect us and how he will respond to protect his people. For his people are his honor. Here in Zechariah chapter 2, the people of God have returned to Israel, to Judea, after the Babylonian captivity. And they are facing tremendous challenges because after being away from this country for 70 years, they're coming back to a place that is decimated. There's a temple to be rebuilt. And there is a city, Jerusalem, and the walls need to be reestablished. The whole society, the whole civilization needs to be set in motion again. It's a tough job. And there are many adversaries and there are enemies and there are people that want them to fail. And there's such a, a little band of people and they're feeling afraid and they're feeling fearful. And God says to them, the person that touches you is poking me in the eye and I won't stand for it. Therefore, carry on and do my work because I will look after you. What a promise this is. A word of comfort and a word of strength. How God protects his people. In Deuteronomy 32 in the verse 10, we have a similar expression where God says of Israel and his wilderness journeys, he found him in a desert land and in a waste howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. And there was Israel in the wilderness, cast out of Egypt. Jitches came thundering after them to the Red Sea. And then God brought them through the Red Sea and God kept his eye upon them during all of those 40 years in the wilderness despite their backslidings and their sinfulness and their rebellions and their breaking of God's law. God still kept his people because they were the apple of his eye. He looked after them. Israel, my glory. And then in the book of Psalms, the Psalm 17 verse 8, we have the, the prayer of the psalmist. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Keep me as the apple of the eye. And that's a prayer that we can offer for ourselves throughout this year. We do not know what tomorrow may bring. 
We do not know what every month throughout this year may bring. But we know this, that when we are the children of God, He will be right there with us because we are the very apple of His eye. And we can claim that promise and we can take this prayer and we can say, Lord, keep me as the apple of the eye because Israel is His glory. Something else I want you to think about here. The Christian is not just glorious in the protection that he or she has, but the Christian is also glorious in the valuation that God places upon them. If God calls his people his glory, then he must have an amazing value for us. He values us. How does he value us? How how does God place a value upon us? Because half the time we're ashamed of ourselves and not as ashamed as we should be. But yet God has this value that he places upon us. Another one of the prophets in the post-exilic period, the period after the exile, helps us with this. We're turning to the last book of the Old Testament now, to the book of Malachi, chapter 3, the verse 17. And we read about the value here that God places upon his people. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them, as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. This is referring, I believe, to the day whenever the Savior will come again. God gathers up His people from every continent, every part of the world. He makes up His jewels. He gathers His jewels together. This is the value that God places upon us. He he sees us as His jewels. He sees us as His gemstones. He sees us as His diamonds. We are precious to Him. That's why we'll never be lost. Now, I believe that this phrase, jewels, is taken from the high priest's breastplate because in the book of Exodus chapter 28, we read about the breastplate that the high priest of Israel wore. And in Exodus chapter 28 and the verse 15, we learn some things about this breastplate. Verse 15 of Exodus 28 says, And thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work. After the work of the ephod, thou shalt make of it of gold, of blue, of purple, of scarlet, of fine twined linen, shalt thou make it. Verse 16 says it was to be four square. And then verse 17 says, There would be four rows of stones. And these stones would be precious stones. So there's four rows of stones, and there's three stones in each row. And you have the names of the various precious stones, the sarius, the topaz, the carbuncle, the emerald, the sapphire, the diamond, the ligure, the agate, the amethyst, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper. And then verse 20 tells us something very interesting about these precious stones. 
they would be set in gold. And what an amazing piece of apparel this breastplate was, because right across the heart of the high priest, you see all these stones, and they're set in gold. They're enclosed with gold. They're encased in gold, set into this breastplate. But what do they mean? What do they represent? Well, Exodus 28 verse 21 says, And the stones shall be with the names of the children of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet. Every one with his name shall they be according to the twelve tribes. And so every tribe of Israel was represented by a precious stone set in gold. And that is a glorious picture of our Savior today in heaven. And he's not wearing a a physical breastplate. But upon his heart is our names. Every one of our names individually. Not just the twelve tribes, but every individual believer, all the elect of God. We are on his heart. We are in his mind. And he's remembering us. And we are so precious. His precious gemstones. Never underestimate what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to have the most amazing privilege on God's earth, to be the jewels of God. Are you one of God's jewels? You know, the psalmist describes the blessed man who walks with God, who refuses the ways of this world, and he contrasts his life with the ungodly man. And he says, the way of the ungodly shall perish. If you're without the Lord, your way is a perishing way. You're just like the dust, going to be lost. But when you know God, you'll be as God's precious gemstone. But there's one final observation I want you to consider. The child of God is not just glorious in the protection that God gives, and the valuation that God gives us. But we are glorious by the identification that we have. Here in the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, the prophet essentially is writing about the salvation that God's people enjoy. And there's something very prophetic about this text, because it does look forward to Christ. I will bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I shall place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. So God puts salvation in Zion for Israel his glory. Zion was the place where the temple was, where the sacrifices were offered. But Christ also died at this place because Zion was where Jerusalem was. And there, just beyond the city wall, our dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. And salvation was placed in Zion for Israel, my glory. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the most glorious aspect of our position as Christians is that we are 
identified with Christ. We are at one with Christ. As God the Father sees his Son, he sees us. And as he sees us, he sees his Son. Because that is the only way by which we can be forgiven. It's the only way by which we can be guaranteed a place in heaven. It is only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is only through his blood that he shed for us, having taken upon himself the guilt that we deserve. And the Apostle Paul, he talks about this in the book of Galatians chapter 2. One of the truly great texts in the New Testament describing what the Christian is. How can we understand the Christian? How can we understand what it means to be a child of God? Paul said in Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He said, I am alive and yet I am dead. The only life I have is the Christ life. The Christ life is the resurrected life. But the old me, Paul said, is dead. Because all of my sins are identified with Christ. He took them. He was nailed to that cross. And there he took away all of my punishment and all of my condemnation. He took it all. He took my hell. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I'm alive today. Not because I'm alive for I died with Christ on that cross. It's Christ who is alive and alive forevermore and the life that I live. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul could never quite get over that. How the Son of God could love me and give himself for me. Identified with Christ and his death and resurrection. And if you're here tonight and if you're not saved, if you're to be a child of God, you must put your faith in Christ alone who loved you, gave himself for you. He loved you so much that he went to that cross to die for you. Why not give your life to him? What better person could you not give your life to? The one who died for you. This is what Paul was writing about. The essence of living a life that truly tells for God's glory. Living for Christ. Are you living for Christ? Have you given him your all? Frances Ridley Havergale was a well-known hymn writer. She wrote hymns at the same time that Fanny Crosby was writing hymns. Fanny Crosby was American. Frances Ridley Havergale was English. The two ladies never met. They never crossed the Atlantic. But they wrote to one another. And Fanny Crosby's hymns were mostly gospel hymns. But Francis Ridley Havergill's hymns were devotional hymns. Hymns designed to challenge God's people to be more surrendered to the Lord. I suppose her most famous hymn is, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. From a very young age, it was recognized that she had this amazing gift for poetry and for music, and she used that gift for God. 
And her words continue to bless, inspire, encourage, and feed the people of God in our worship. She died a relatively young woman. She was only 43 years of age, and she had a lot of trouble with illness throughout her life, and she had a very weak constitution. Whenever she was upon her sickbed that was to be her deathbed, her doctor came to visit her, and he said, goodbye. I shall not see you again. She asked him a question. She said, do you really think I am going? He looked back at her and he said, yes. She said, when am I going? And he said, very possibly today. It's a far cry from the way we try to hide death. People are obviously dying. We try to hide away from them the fact they are dying. And that can be a bad thing. It can be particularly a bad thing when a person doesn't know God. They're dying. And they're encouraged not to think of the fact that they are dying. But she was a child of God. And the doctor, in a very straightforward way, said, I think you'll die today. You know what she said? She said, Beautiful. It's too good to be true. Those are amongst her last words. She slipped into the presence of God because she knew she was identified with Christ, her Savior. She wrote these words, words, I suppose, which were prophetic of her own death and of her own submission to death. Just listen to them. Just when thou wilt, O Master, call, or at the noon or evening fall, or in the dark or in the light, just when thou wilt, it must be right. Just when thou wilt, O Saviour, come, take me to dwell in thy bright home, or when the snows have crowned my head, or ere it hath one silver thread. Just when thou wilt, O Bridegroom, say, rise up, my love, and come away, open to me thy golden gate, just when thou wilt, or soon, or late. Just when thou wilt, thy time is best. Thou shalt appoint my hour of rest, marked by the sun of perfect love, shining unchangeably above. Just when thou wilt, no choice for me. Life is a gift to use for thee. Death is a hushed and glorious Christ. With thee, my King, my Saviour, Christ. Are you prepared for that? For that day when God will call? God will issue the summons? Are you prepared? She wrote in that last verse, life is a gift to use for thee. This year is a gift to use for God. And it's only those that are the children of God who can use that gift for His glory. Are you a child of God today? And closing by your head, surrender your all to God and say, Lord, take my life and use it for you.
and giving myself over to you. Take this poor sinner and save this sinner's soul. And wash me in the blood of your Son that I might live for you before it be too late. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, write your word upon every heart. For those that know thee not, grant that burden to seek you for life. For Christ's sake, amen. Let us sing this closing hymn together. I do not know what lies ahead, the way I cannot see. Yet one stands near to be my guide, he'll show the way to me.
Father in heaven, part us from this place with your blessing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the eternal spirit, our comfort, be your faith. Now and evermore. Amen.